This episode of Roadwork is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so just enjoy the show. Hello. Hey, John. Hey, Dan Benjamin. How are you? Oh, great. <laughs> Man, it's very early for me, of course. Yeah. But... Well, you wanted to, you've got a big day ahead, so you wanted to get it in early. Yeah, I got a lot of stuff going on and uh, and figured uh, let's uh, let's get this show on the road. Yeah. But now, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan Benjamin, but this is not even your first podcast this morning. No, this is number, technically number three, but really number number two with another person. Uh, oh, your first podcast was just by yourself? Yeah, the podcast method one that I, I work on. Do you just talk into the into the atmosphere? Straight at, well, there's a mic there, but yeah. Oh, I see. Wow. <laughs> it's not so, just, just me podcasting without any equipment or anything. Just, I mean. They, some people would call that pooping. I'm still getting used to you, Dan, and I, <laughs> you could be doing a, your first podcast to warm up. So let me, let, let me get this straight. You, this is your third podcast today. How, how do you keep, how do you keep fresh? Uh, I don't know. I guess I just been doing it so much now. This is, this is my job. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I have to, I have to how do you how do you play two sets a night? I don't. Well, are you kidding me? <laughs> two sets a night. <laughs> you better be prepared to pay me 30 grand. Nice. Yeah, that whole two sets a night thing is for chumps. <laughs> Unless you're doing like an all ages show early or something. I mean, or uh, maybe an in-store. All ages that's like a kid show. That's for kids, yeah. Okay. But you know, the kids are the adults of tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, so you, you, you play for them and they're eternally grateful and then they become your fans and then they become big time Hollywood film directors. Right. And they use your music in their big, uh, their big fantasy opera. And then uh, you become rich and famous. Somebody tweeted that they heard uh, a long winter song in a commercial recently. Uh, that's entirely possible, but also um, they used our song on Sunday Night Football. Is that what it was? Yeah, and so, of course, what that means is some director of the Sunday Night Football broadcast was a Long Winters fan when they were a kid, and we played some in-store or some all-ages <laughs> show for them, and they never forgot it. Right. And so they used us on uh, on their TV program, and that will result in $5.60 directly into my bank account is it really that bad is that all yes it is that bad because i would think that if if they played your song mm -hmm. on sunday would, night football that's the big one send me 120 dollars right well or even uh, even thousands of dollars yeah, you would think no, that's not how it works retirement you know, money once upon a time uh there was a kind of situation, I guess, where uh, a lot of those programs, television programs, were, they'd spent a long time, you know, trying to use the Rolling Stones in their shows. Yeah. And the Rolling Stones started charging $750,000 or whatever. Right. And then these uh, television shows realized that they could use indie rock bands <laughs> and only pay them 30000 or $50,000. And the indie rock bands were like, that's more money than I've made in my whole life. And the television people 
We're like, that's how much we spend on craft services in a day. <laughs> right. And For so an there, afternoon. Was, there was this brief moment where both parties thought they were getting a great deal. Hollywood was like, can you believe these suckers? They'll take 50 grand. And then a whole generation of musicians came along who sat in front of their computers and duplicated the sound of the postal service. (laughs) And Hollywood discovered that those guys would do it for $1,500. Oh, wow. And Hollywood was like, well, unless it's, unless it's that stupid band from Australia, that's like, Dun, 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 dun. Are you going to be my girl? <laughs> Unless it was that band. They were like, all indie bands sound the same. They all sounded like the Postal Service or Arcade Fire. <laughs> and we can get these uh, these guys who are sitting in front of their computer who are undercutting the market to do that for basically free. $1,500. I mean, that's just like, we just take that. That's what we light our cigars with them. <laughs> And so then those guys screwed it up for everybody. And then the next generation of those guys came along and were like, I'll make you postal service music on my computer for $50. And then the whole, it was just like in the course of 10 years, it just went to shit. So do so, you, do you even like get notified when that happens? Do you get a, a courtesy call or, or no? No, I get a lot of text messages from people who watch football. <laughs> so you don't even know it's going to happen. You're not even there watching to hear it. The worst part about it was I was in a, I was at a mall <laughs> in uh, North Seattle trying to go to a movie with a friend. And she was like, I want to go to a movie. And I was like, whatever. And we went all the way up to some dumb movie theater. And then before the movie, she said, I'm very hungry. And the only place to eat was a fat burger. (laughs) And I had never been to a fat burger. I have to say I had a good experience there. The night manager was very good. Uh, The hamburger was only fine. (laughs) And we were watching the football game at the fat burger. (laughs) But I'm not sure the sound was up. (laughs) Right. So it might have played my song while I was watching it, but and I didn't, you didn't even hear it. You didn't even hear it. Didn't hear it uh, because it, I couldn't hear it over the fat burger background noise. <laughs> and so I heard about it. And then I went to the movies. So I heard about it after I got out of the movies. I was like, oh, well, that's what, good. What do you think your reaction would have been had you been sitting there at the fat burger and had heard it? I would have been very surprised. I think I would have been surprised and delighted. But I often am in a situation where my music is playing in a restaurant or something, and I don't recognize it immediately. I mean, I go, hey, this tune's pretty catchy. Yeah, this is a good one. This connects with me. <laughs> and then it's only later that I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I know this band. Are you kidding? Really? No, it happens. Because the thing is, I, I do not listen to my records, my own records. And in a lot of cases, after I've finished the record... I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've listened to it. I don't listen. I didn't. I don't listen to it immediately after finishing it. You know, like it's done and it's like into the pipeline. It's not like I'm going to sit and listen to it. All that's going to do is drive me crazy. And then later on down the road, five years down the road, I'm like, huh? I wonder what that record sounds like, and I'll listen to it once. 
but it's not listening to my own music is not a priority for me. But you're also, I think in supportive of the, of the album, you're playing the songs, right? Like you're performing a lot. Yes. Of them. And what happens is I get, uh, the performance sort of evolves. And when I do listen to the record five years down the road, I'm like, Oh my God, that's not how we play it at all. <laughs> You know, I'll make modifications, slight modifications to the vocals, and then pretty soon, you know, I'm off to the races in the way I sing it, and lots of things get lost in the initial translation where it's like, okay, all I'm trying to do is get through this song. I'm not trying to play a bunch of weedly, weedly, weed parts. But then later on, I'll listen to it, and <laughs> I'll be the, like... That's the industry term, right? Weedly, weedly, woo. <laughs> but then five years later, I'll be like, oh, I could have been playing that the whole time. It's not that that was hard. It was just that the the initial practice sessions, I was just trying to play the rhythm part. Yeah. And then I, because I don't revisit it, I never remember, like... And what I'll do is I'll hire, I'll hire somebody to be in the band for a while, and they will discover those parts because they'll be learning it from the record. And so they'll come in and all of a sudden I'll hear these parts getting played and I'm like, oh, that's right. That was a cool guitar part. <laughs> and I mean, it would have been something that I played, but didn't bother to learn. Now, as a, not, not bother to learn, but, you know, didn't manage to learn. Yeah. As a, as a, a performer yourself, going to a concert, seeing somebody else play a band you like or someone like that play. Do you find you appreciate it more when it's like almost exactly like the album or do you appreciate it more when it's more like a jam session or it's different or it, this is the way they've been, they recorded it five years ago and they've been on tour many times since then. And now this is how they like what, what, because I know that there are people who kind of evaluate a performance based on like how close to the album it was. Mm -hmm. you know like what do you think of that are you when you're up there are you trying to replicate the album or are you just like this is how i play the song now this is the way i feel about the song now well as i just indicated it is the later it yeah. is the latter um my but i mean is know, that my, your goal or is it simply that that was your adaptation f because that that may, is what makes sense on stage or on tour it's much more to do with the fact that when i'm in the studio i am trying to make uh, I, I'm trying to make the most interesting and beautiful thing I can. And then when I'm playing a concert, I'm trying to make the most stripped down, efficient touring thing I can. Yeah. Because in order to create the studio recording live, I would have to have nine people. Right, and right two of those people would be standing on the stage with blanks, blank looks on their face for a third of the song. <laughs> and then they would reach out and play a triangle and then they would play a little keyboard part and then they would, you know, play some bells and all that stuff is necessary in the, in the record, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but impossible to duplicate on stage or uh, unless either you have nine people on stage, a la the Arcade Fire, or the four people that are on stage are running around like crazy people trying to cover all this music. You know, you see bands like that where the 
the guitar player has like a tambourine on the floor <laughs> that he's <laughs> stepping on while he plays or, you know, the Mumford and Sons, the guitar player and singer also is playing the kick drum throughout the, throughout the show. And so these guys learned to do that. That was part of their sound, but it's so much more work to be singing passionately, playing the guitar, and then also thinking about like, oh, here comes that other part that I'm responsible for. And and so you strip it down. And I've had people come up after shows and say like, you know, your your recordings are so, you know, headphone candy compared to mm. your live shows, which are like the who. Like a guy came up one time and he was like, your live shows are like the fucking who. And then, you know, when I put on your records, I just don't get that visceral punch because, because it's not so loud and distorted and rock and roll. And I'm like, yeah, they're just two different art forms. Yeah. And when I go to see, I mean, the other dirty secret, Dan, is that I don't listen to music. I don't listen to records. So the music that I know the best I mean, talking about classic rock, obviously, yeah. when I was in high school, I learned, I listened to those records. But once I became a performing musician, it was very hard for me to put on albums. I just, I didn't, it doesn't interest me. This was a change, though. Well, no, I mean, what happened? So when I was in high school, right, everybody's listening to recorded music, and so am I. You put on a record, you drop the needle, you listen to side one of, of uh, ritual, well, no, that was after I graduated. But like, you listen to side one of Leonard Skinner's Golden Platinum <laughs> uh, double album, <laughs> right? Or you listen to uh, side two of of uh, Rolling Stones' Sticky Fingers or something, and you play guitar on a tennis racket. Like you're 16, so you don't have anything to do, right? But as soon as I left home. I was very poor and I didn't have an album. I didn't have a record player and I was dependent on hearing music playing in, in Denny's while I was smoking cigarettes in the middle of the night. (laughs) And then I never picked up the habit again because it seemed both really expensive and involved to keep up a music collection and, and the stereo equipment necessary, necessary to play it. And also, I preferred silence. So the music that I know the best is music by bands that I've toured with, where I stood by the stage and watched them every night, uh, trying to absorb what they were doing, trying to understand how they were getting their sounds. But I've never listened to a Not A Surf record all the way through. I've listened to select tracks, but I've seen them play... 80 to 100 times. Uh, well, no, wait a minute. More than that. You know, hun- uh, more than 100 times, let's say. And so I know every note and their music causes me to be very emotional. Mm-hmm. But it's, when I listen to their recordings, I'm like, oh my God, right? There's other parts in there. And let's see, the last band I listened to recordings of was Built to Spill in the, early to mid nineties. I did have those records and I listened to them on headphones because that band really, really, really 
motive, motivated me and, and, and connected with me. And their live shows, he, they went through multiple phases. There was a time when they would live, they would play, they, Doug Marsh would sing the first verse and then just abandon the singing altogether and just noodle on his Stratocaster. And those shows were pretty unsatisfying. I went to a Built to Spill show one time where during the last song of the night, the bass player actually put his instrument down and walked off the stage because he was bored. <laughs> and I followed him into the back bar and he you know, walked up to the bar and was like ordered a drink and I sat down next to him and I was like, that was, that was really an ordeal. And he was like, I just couldn't take it anymore, man. I couldn't stand it. Wow. Because it was just like, but then later, Built to Spill hired a third guitar player. That's a three guitar lineup. (laughs) And they mostly played their music verbatim like the records. And I have to say that was very satisfying. Uh, But in general, I don't don't care, right? I don't care. Well, the, the third option, of course is that you play to tracks that everybody on stage be playing to some kind of click track. And then you have all your beadly boops and including like extra guitar parts and keyboard parts and all this stuff that could and should be played by a live musician. You have all that stuff on tracks and it's play and it plays from a computer. And I find that just despicable. It's almost like a lip syncing yeah, in a way. Right. And I've had friends that do it, you know. Um, I've had friends where, I mean, the initial lineup of Keen, their base, their entire base was on tracks, which no one in the audience noticed because their their fans typically weren't seasoned musicians who were looking for who's playing the parts. But like their entire bass line was, it's just like hire a guy, you know. Uh, and they eventually did hire a guy, a great musician who really fills out their sound. It's almost like when you, when you're in a mall, like an outdoor mall and there's like a guy who's just, he's got some kind of little computery mm-hmm. thing and, and a microphone and he's like just singing along with like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like uh, early on, John Vanderslice, who also did a lot of Beatley boops on his records, just like we did. He was an, actually an influence on us kind of, he had all these cool sounds and we were like, Oh, you can do that. Oh, that would be amazing. And we started doing it too. Um, he went through a phase where he would have sounds on tracks and, you know, he's playing to pretty small audiences in little indie rock clubs. And it was just jarring. It was incongruous. He's up there with a, with a small band and, and then over the PA would come this like, <laughs> and you're like where is that coming from and and it's not coming from anywhere but i think he abandoned that he abandoned that um because you know he really loved john darniel who is very stripped down you know he just lets darniel just lets the song speak for itself and i think that also in, influenced everybody to a, to a degree. You know, there, I remember going to a big guns and roses show Mm -hmm. and it was, if I'm remembering correctly, 
it was New Year's Eve, 1989, <laughs> turning to 90. Woo! Big year. And, you know, it was, it was a late concert. And I think right at midnight, Axel says, it's about to be midnight, 10, 9, you know, and they had little fireworks and everything going on. And I, this was at what used to be called Joe Robbie Stadium in Miami. And so it was like, it was a pretty exciting thing. It was a pretty, you know, me and probably like 50,000 other people were there. Yeah. But I remember that for the most part, they were playing pretty much exactly what was, uh, what, what was on the album, pretty much exactly the way it sounded on the album. They had the yeah. whole lineup there. And I remember that being very satisfying the way you're describing it. Like it was, it sounded just like the album, except we were getting to see this live performance thing. And of course, you know, Slash had his like, I'm going to do an extended guitar solo now for this song, which was great. But I found that my own musical taste, and I got to see so many different bands because as you can imagine me being an usher, I was an usher at the, we had like a, an arena thing at the, at the university in Orlando when I was in college. And so my job, I love every aspect of that sentence. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's just exactly the way you would imagine it being. And so I got to see a lot of shows because there were, there were sort of two venues in Orlando at the time. This is in the early nineties. One of them was like the huge, huge, huge stadium. And then the other one was there at, at UCF. Right, and so, it's a slightly smaller stadium. The much smaller stadium, but they would fill it. You know, a band could come there and fill it. So even some of the bigger acts would still come through there. But I mean, I got to see everyone, everyone who came to town that wasn't one of these just like a Rolling Stones level band, they would go to the small arena. And so, of course, like what could be a better job in college than to like get to hear all these free concerts? So yeah. I had to see tons and tons of people play. And I re- it, my appreciation for seeing this this different kind of performance that you know what yes it's the same song but they've played it now hundreds of times live and i'm getting to hear a completely different version of the song that that really changed my opinion of it and i no longer went in with this expectation of like it's going to be a sucky show if they're not playing it like the album or oh they can't play it like the album that was the other thing then they're not you know like yeah. they took them 20 takes to get that part right in the studio. So of course they're not playing yeah, it that way. Exactly. It, it changed my perspective of it. Well, I feel like uh, among musicians, the consensus com- for most of us is, and I think this might be an indie thing or maybe it's, I don't know. The consensus is that your casual fans that don't go to many concerts and are just like normals, <laughs> they want to hear the record as it's played or, right. uh, you know, as close to the record as it can be because they want to sing along and they, they know the record inside and out, but they don't go to a lot of live concerts. And then your fans that are live music aficionados that go to concerts all the time are much more used to hearing improvisations and alterations. So, I mean, I have definitely read reviews of our concerts where the person was lamenting the fact that we we monkeyed around with the songs, we talked too much during the song, you know, during the set. <laughs> we had an unprofessional attitude. I mean, a woman once 
wrote a review of a show in San Francisco where she was like, John Roderick was visibly drunk. And that's so unprofessional. And at that point, I had been sober for 10 years. <laughs> and so it was like, well, you are perceiving a kind of playfulness that is very important to me. I mean, I can't. I would have to actively work to divorce that from my onstage persona. But I've also toured like the band SR-71 I toured with at one point when I was in Harvey Danger. And those guys said the same banter every night. Really? The same quote-unquote spontaneous banter. <laughs> like, hey, how's it going? You know, you guys look amazing. Like, what's up? And, and it's all the same every night. <laughs> and I just would, I mean, that's just barfy yeah including like the guitar player would flick picks out into the audience at the same moment every night <laughs> and it's just like you guys they're putting on a broadway show at that point and it's a broadway show featuring their own music and it's just it's just two different styles of, of show business and i i cannot would i will not and would not do the other kind i could probably make my shows more like tighter and more um, efficient, mm -hmm. but you know I'm not getting paid enough. And 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 the case that people make is like the reason I'm not getting paid enough is because I don't have a very professional show. And if I did have a professional show, maybe I would be a bigger artist. Uh, but I reject that. Why? Because there are so many people who are out there telling you what you need to do as an artist. If you just had a more professional show, or if you just made simpler songs, or if you just this, or if you just that, if you just had a, had a professional headshot where you were standing in front of a brick wall, uh, and all of it is like, people are just casting spells on you. Like right. it, if it, if it was just a matter of uh, of a rule book, then every band would be huge. Because every, if it was a rule book, every band would follow the rules and they'd all be huge. And what ends up happening is people will tell you there's a rule book and you can see the bands that are trying to follow it because they have headshots in front of a brick wall. Right. And they make stripped down rock and roll. Um or they or they make or they have a keyboard player or whatever it is that somebody's told them they have to do and it doesn't read as authentic and it doesn't make them it doesn't give them any other kind of leg up you know um and so but there again there's an argument that like if you do it all right and you have luck you're able to capitalize on that luck in a way that you know, maybe the Long Winters were one of the bands that were going to get lucky, but that lucky moment, instead of instead of going right into the next song, I chose to spend fifteen minutes talking about the ancient Sumerians, <laughs> and whoever it was in the audience that was like, "I'm looking for the next hot band," said, "This is too." Uh, this is too bizarre. This right. guy doesn't doesn't want it. 
bad enough. <laughs> All right. And they they left, but you know, I don't like that person anyway. I'm not performing for them. So, I mean, and the fact is you look back retrospectively and I didn't, I didn't, nor do I presently have a, have a bad shot at it. Like I didn't have a bad run and I'm still working as a professional musician, mm-hmm. which is more than 99% of the musicians can say. So whatever it was that I was doing wrong, I was also doing it right. Right. Something was right. But, but that whole business of like people who supposedly know giving you advice, what you'll find is the successful musicians will very seldom give you advice that, that tells you to change your thing or strip it down. Or I mean, every once in a while, somebody will say, you know, they'll give you a little bit of like helpful hint. But I mean, for instance, Death Cab for Cutie for 15 years, the most banter they would ever do on stage was like, thanks you guys. And then they'd play another song and then they'd play a second song and a third song and a fourth song. And then Ben would walk up to the mic and be like, thanks you guys. And then into another song. Like they never said anything. Now they're a little bit looser. Like at one point in the show, Ben will say something, talk for a little bit. Maybe somebody else will say something, but mostly it's like right into the songs. But Ben has never a single time said to me, why don't you stop bantering so much? That type of advice always comes from supposed managers, uh, sound men, you know, lawyers, all those people. And, you know, you are absolutely entitled to ignore every single person like that. Right. You're almost obligated to ignore them. <laughs> And now look at me, a famous uh, schlub, and a, <laughs> and you know, and, a, and an effective podcaster. And right. where would I where would I have learned that podcasting skill if not by annoying people on stage? Right. Yeah, that's what we're doing here. Yeah, basically annoying people and not even on stage. <laughs> right. From the comfort of your own personal office, <laughs> just sitting here, annoying people. I can't even see their faces. They could write letters to me and say, knock it off. Stop talking so much and, <laughs> you know, yeah. less talk, more rock on your podcast. But then they would be idiots. I had a, I actually had a topic that I wanted to oh, oh, good. bring up with you. That's one thing. That's one difference between this podcast and the other podcast I do, which is it is, it is plausible that you might have a topic. Mm-hmm. Whereas Merlin Mann, I don't. I don't think he has any topics unless he is sneaking topics past me where unlike like sort of guiding guiding the conversation into a topic in a very subtle I mean, way. There have been situations where Merlin knew something like that my house caught on fire right. or uh you know that I was that I had received a bullet wound at some point in the last week but he doesn't <laughs> say anything about it and I don't bring it up and it ends up being it ends up not being on the show do you think he try he tries to sort of follow the narrative of your life or do you think he tries to avoid it and let it just explore whatever comes out on the show because i try to follow your narrative as best as i can like i want to talk to you about 
and mainly on via Instagram. That's the main way that I'm <laughs> keeping track of you. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, I have no. I I mean, Merlin lives in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. So very. So that show is uh, happens in the moment. Um. Yeah, I don't think he. I don't think he forces it, or I, mean, I wouldn't even say force it. I would just say I don't think he has a. I do not think he has a plan. He does that thing where he's like, I've got these note cards, but he never refers to them, right. as far as I can tell. Right. So you have a topic, and I would like to hear it. Well, uh, we recently had a Friday the 13th. Yeah. And then now we have episode 13 that we're recording right now. Hello. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, we, we've talked before about things like like sentimentality and the belief that things have sort of a life to them and hugging trees. And I all, I, I wondered if you were a superstitious person or if you have like on stage rituals, like you've got to be wearing your, your, your lucky socks or, you know, does, does the, the number 13 have a significance for you? Are you in any way, like, do you think about that kind of thing at all? Uh, well, so I was born on a Friday the 13th. And once I learned that Friday the 13th was some kind of auspicious day and also knew that I was born on a Friday the 13th, then I then I felt like that it's that was significant. And you know, I learned that what was I 6 years old maybe that I understood the connection between Friday the 13th, which, which it felt to me like in the 70s, things like Friday the 13th and the Bermuda Triangle and Unexplained Mysteries, those things had a lot more purchase on our imagination culturally than they do now. I mean, the, the 70s were like an orgy of talking about the Bermuda Triangle. And... When was the last time anybody said anything about the Bermuda Triangle? Right. I mean, the, we used to have In Search Of. Remember that yeah. show? In Search. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was obsessed. I was. Bo- I was obsessed and terrified by that show on a regular basis. Yeah, and and also, it wasn't just the show. It was like the Bermuda Triangle was a was like on television. Yeah. It was in it was in newspapers and <laughs> everywhere. Like, it was everywhere. How do we explain this phenomenon? <laughs> and we have not explained it. Um, but no one talks about it anymore. And so, so I understood that I was born on Friday the 13th and it was during an era when that stuff mattered. And so what, what I came to believe was that having been born on Friday the 13th gave me some special powers. Oh yeah. And I would, I I would argue by the way that it did. Well, that I was, uh, some kind of, uh, warlock. And I remember, I remember being in the backyard and I was like playing with some neighborhood kids and I was doing some, uh, bippity boppity boo on them. (laughs) And my mom happened to be walking through the yard as I was, uh, casting a spell of some kind (laughs) and she grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and marched me away and got right down in my face and was like, 
do not mess with powers you do not understand. Oh. And I was shocked. She never did things like that. She never, ever, ever grabbed me by the scruff of my neck. And she was very serious in a way that I had not seen her before. Do not mess with powers you do not understand. And I took that to mean that my mom had access to powers I didn't understand and that it was not my turn to use them. I was untrained and I was irresponsible. Right, like you, you, you were potentially tapping into something that you could unleash in a way that, like a Pandora's box. Yeah, that she was already, that she had been initiated into a guild and had not yet initiated me into that guild. And, but I did have those powers because otherwise she wouldn't have said, don't use them. Right. That confirmed your suspicion. A little bit. Yeah. And so from that point on, I was careful not to say uh, bippity-boppity-boo, but also sort of waited expectantly for my mom to say, all right, now we're going down into, the, into my lair uh, where I'm going to show you the inside skinny on this. And she never did. So either she is keeping those powers secret still, which seems like kind of an insult (laughs) uh, because I do feel pretty ready (laughs) or she, you know, my mom definitely is, has some, uh, some superstitions and she was just cautioning me not to mess around. Uh, but but not that she had special knowledge. Um, and all of that, you know, uh, all of that has produced in me still sort of a conviction that if I were, if I just had a little bit of training, I would be much more effective. Um, I think later on I bippity-boppity-booed a little bit more when I realized that I wasn't, it wasn't something I was going to learn as a, my mom was not going to initiate me as a kid. Like, time's a-wasting. Let's see what I can conjure. Did you ever successfully conjure anything? Well, I mean, it's completely unlikely that I would be where I am. So, maybe. Yeah. Is this the kind of thing that you were putting out there? Uh, no. Like I this mean, podcast? or I'm, You know, <laughs> I, I never trained enough to be even a sleight of hand magician. I never even learned the basic card tricks because it required practicing a thing that was going to fool people. And that didn't seem to me to, you know, I wasn't impressed. That wasn't actual magic. I was waiting for some sort of Harry Potter moment. Right. Where it was revealed that I, you know, that everyone else was a muggle. Uh, and when that never came, I mean, who can account for, like, to be an athlete is to be born with a, with a capability, a capability to run fast, and you train, but to be an elite athlete, your training must also accom- accompany an, an, an innate ability. 
you can't, if training were enough to be an elite athlete, then there would be a lot more elite athletes because there are a lot of people that train really hard. But to be truly like a world record holder, you have to also be gifted. And I definitely feel like my gift is a kind of perceptiveness and ability to interpret that perceptiveness, you know, an ability to see multiple layers. As I've said before, an ability to hold two contradictory ideas right. simultaneously in my head and right. not be confused by that. But also to, you know, to the interconnectedness of things. Like I can see how things are connected to one another. And that is a, that does feel like a gift. It's not a thing I trained to do, but what I did train to do, which is read history and read other people, activated that gift. And I was able to use my perception to learn better. It felt very much like learning to run really fast, which was, which was that I read a thing and I made a connection to something else. And that was exciting to me. And I pursued that. I pursued that in my own education, like, because I would see the connections, I would see where they were incomplete, and then I would go study and read in the, in the shadowy realms that I didn't know. So that, you know, but what kind of gift is that? That, I mean, athleticism is a, is a gift that you can, you can see, you can measure. But what kind, of, what kind of gift is perceptiveness and awareness of interconnectedness and... Um, and the ability to hold contradictory ideas. It is a kind of, it's, it's not a smartness necessarily. Um, it's a sort of, it's a quality. And it sometimes looks like spooky hmm. knowledge, like spooky mind reading or spooky um, perceptiveness when used can seem like extrasensory, but it isn't. It's just, you know, people say to me, all people look like surprised and scared. And I will go, what? They're like, how did you know that? I'm like, how did I know that? It's plain as day. Right. How did you not know it? Yeah. And, and that happens to me all the time, and that has always been a that's always been a thing that and, and if people are if people are dorks, I will totally play that up. Be like, how did I know? <laughs> Is it more with, with situ <laughs> situational knowledge or understanding of concepts, or is it more in reading a person and being able to tell the person about themselves? I mean, I think. My perception of it is that, and, and again, this is something I've, I've said a lot, and I, I kind of never feel like people really get it, but it's like there's, there are templates, and people are not that different from each other. Mm -hmm. And every person feels so unique, and every person feels like their problems are so unique, but they're just, they're just not. They're, they're out of a playbook, and it's, it's combinations of things that make situations unique. But the but the initial things aren't that different. And so people are like, oh my God, no one's ever been in this situation. I mean, and maybe that's true, but if you, if you can just perceive the factors, 
where it's like, well, you know, you're this and this situation is that. And here's the third element and then the mystery fourth element. And that's why you are where you are. And, and, th- and people will say, how did you know? I mean, three of those things, how could you have known? It's like, well, you just extrapolate from where you are. Of course, right, this, right. of course, this was true. And also this other thing. And those are just templates. It's like, it's almost like an improv class. Like, give me an animal, give me a state and, you know, give me an emotion. And then they, then they improv on those topics. And it's sort of like, that's true of most situations people are in. Right. And, um, so that, that just, that just seems like so apparent to me, but I guess I, 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 I suppose what it is is that other people aren't looking for templates or they're not, they're not holding that stuff in their memory or they're not making connections where it's like, oh, I've seen this situation before. Yeah. That means this is a template. And I've been doing that my whole life. It's like almost like a kind of pattern recognition in a right. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. And so I have a mental f- like file cabinet where it's like I've seen all these patterns I understand that they are patterns. And when I, co- when I come upon a situation where I don't have a, a set of patterns to refer to, right. it's, it's pretty unusual. And, and for, for instance, running for office, I entered into a world where I didn't recognize some of the patterns. And one of the principal patterns I didn't recognize was sort of a universal distrust of other people Mm. that infects politics and i know i have a whole file of of traits of distrustful people but what i didn't understand was that this was a culture of distrust and so people were reinforcing one another's distrust and they were all presupposing that everyone shared this uh mentality and so I was in a situation where, or I, I, I normally live in a world where people are, are situationally distrustful when it comes to money or when it comes to their sex lives, but they're not, they're not presuming that everyone is lying all the time. And that is true in politics. And then people, because they understand that, then they are looking for other signs, other signals. And I couldn't, for the longest time, break out of of a belief system where it's like, well, what did I just say? I said that I would do this, or I said that I am this type of person. So why would you question that? And people are like, why would I question that? Every politician says those things. It's like, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but you're not listening to me because I'm not. But I'm not, not doing saying, that. I'm not saying what every politician says. I'm saying something significantly different and they're like yeah 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 maybe it sounds different but it's the it's basically the same and they're pattern recognition they're they're pattern recognizing they're saying like every politician says he's going to do this and doesn't every politician says these are his values and those aren't and you know uh so we have to look for other signs to determine how predictably you're going to behave it was just like whoa (laughs) so having seen that you know, I've filled in some of that information, but I still don't. 
I mean, my preference is not to live in that world. Right. So I recognized what a uphill battle it was going to be for me to learn that, learn all those signifiers. And I could very definitely see that to learn those signifiers is to adopt them. You know, it, it's almost impossible to to truly understand that culture without also losing your own belief that people are honest or, or belief that, you know, people are mostly honest. It's why sociopaths uh, dupe us. Right, because we go in with that belief that, like, people are are going to speak to us the same way we would want to speak to them. Why wouldn't they do that? Yeah. Especially in, in just like a, a situation where it seems like there's nothing to gain or lose. Exactly. When somebody says, I never masturbate, it's like, all right, I know you're lying, but, but it's <laughs> yeah. clear why you know, you're, Right, why, yeah. You know, you're embarrassed by it, and, and that, that suggests that you either come from a certain culture or that you are truly damaged and you know and you can put together like what are the possible cultures that you're from and sometimes just looking at a person you can like guess oh i know where kind of where you're coming from when somebody says i've never cheated on my wife you can believe that or not kind of based on their the rest of their character but when somebody says when somebody comes into a room and is just like just lying to you about nothing you never are going to anticipate it right especially if they start that way if they start as a stranger just presenting themselves as a normal person but it's all a completely fake like a lot of a lot of people get get duped by that at that point you are going on feeling yeah yeah and i mean that that feeling i don't think a lot of people have that. I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to reading people. And uh, I'm by no means like an expert at this, but I've always had a very, very good read on people in, in a kind of innate way. And it's something that as I got older, I was able to work on and practice and develop. And I'm by no means like a human lie detector or anything like that. But and I'm always open to the possibility that I could be wrong. But I generally am a very, very, very good read on people when I meet them. And I've been in so many situations where, you know, be at a, been in a meeting or meeting someone for the first time or spending a little bit of time with someone and the person will leave. And, uh, and, and I'll say, wow, you know, that you, you could tell that this person was maybe not being honest about this thing or, well, I don't think we should work with this person. And the other people would be like, why do you say that? I'm like, you didn't feel that? Like you didn't completely feel it in every fiber of your entire being that we shouldn't trust this person? You know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, no. And, and I, I realized early on that that was, you know, the times I've gone against that, I've always regretted it. And then I, I start overanalyzing stuff. I'm like, well, maybe somehow I, because I had this impression, I, my actions were based on the impression that I then had. And that somehow tainted the actual outcome. Mm -hmm. 
But then there have been enough situations where I might have met someone and then had no further interaction with them. And then other people did. And then it, it went bad for one reason or another. And I was like, aha, mm-hmm. right again. But still, you might have been Schrodinger's catting it. Right. There is that. There is that. I mean, I, I, think the, I think the way the study of history plays into it is that history reveals a lot. Um, when somebody dies and you reassess their whole life, you see a lot of things, even lies that they maintained throughout their life. Um, and that enables you to, to say like, okay, this person was lived his, his or her life this way. And then in the final accounting, it was actually this. And you apply, you apply that knowledge to your templates too. And it's why I don't especially believe in wide ranging conspiracies because the number of wide ranging conspiracies, I mean, there are tons and tons of conspiracies at the level of the military industrial complex. Right. Or, um, you know, subterfuges, but over the, over the course of history, for there to be a secret cabal that's actually running things and that that secret cabal would, would be directly influencing people and world action and yet no one that would never truly be revealed i mean there are a lot of people that write tomes that is based on sort of pure speculation or connecting the dots where it's like well you could connect the dots that way or you could connect them the other way too but not no one really I mean, very, very seldom do you get somebody that's like, I'm an Air Force pilot and I've been to Area 51 and seen the, the dead UFOs. It's like, over time, that stuff is revealed, is revealed to be less and less plausible rather than more and more plausible. You know, like people say that stuff, but but it's never it never really plays out that way that there's that the Bilderberg group or the Rothschilds mm-hmm. are are doing any I mean the simplest explanation is usually the best and all of the all of the behavior of the Rothschilds most simply is explained by the fact that they are capitalists and trying to secure trying to corner a market and secure an advantage for themselves yeah and that seems a, seems reasonable, and it is a great ex- explanation for all of their behavior. The idea that they're meeting in secret in an underground bunker <laughs> with the other Jews, <laughs> right? To you know, to run the world. It's yeah. like, well, first and foremost, what would their advantage be beyond what they all what they're accomplishing just visibly? Like, what are they? What what is their what is the advantage? It's just like the the movie Spectre, like. It's never explained why Spectre cares. Do they, is it for money? They all, I mean, it's, that isn't explained. They're not trying to get rich. They're just trying to control. We, we all assume like surveillance is its own reward. 
<laughs> oh, we know everything about you. Well, so what? What are you going to do with it? You know, and and the thing about conspiracies is that they're so, you know, it's, it's so often people trying to explain phenomenon that they can't understand that's affecting them directly. And it's like, do you really think the Rothschilds give a shit about you living in Arizona? <laughs> Some retiree living in Arizona, the Rothschilds are surveilling you for something? What could they possibly want from you? And that's the question that, you know, that reveals like, well, okay, the people that are reporting conspiracies have not thought it through. Like the Rothschilds don't, they're not watching you. And, and for the most part, the NSA has such a difficult time sorting through just the eavesdropping on known terrorists, let alone some fucking ding-a-ling that owns a ranch in Utah. You know what? NSA is really, I mean, if they are monitoring your phone calls, they don't, they don't give a shit about it. So in general, like that's the, the study of history kind of plays into this sense of like, we, a lot of stuff is revealed. A lot of embarrassing stuff is revealed about people, but so often it's just explained like every terrible thing that Stalin did that resulted in tens of millions of people dying. It was, it's just easily explained by Stalin having a cult of personality and, and, and that being the deciding factor. Don't ever let all power rest in the hands of one person. They can't handle it. It's not that Stalin was like, if I kill 60 million people, I will serve my masters mm-hmm. in, you know, in some circular room somewhere. But I don't know. As far as your the other part of your question, do I have rituals? Mm. No. With the exception of a few things. I I um, anthropomorphize objects so that I often will not throw away a pen because that's the pen that I used to sign the document mm. that later on resulted in some fortuitous thing and 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 it's not necessarily fortuitous that's the pen that i used to write the farewell letter to my one true love it's hard for me to throw the pen away partly because of its significance to me and partly because i feel like the pen itself knows so that seems a little bit like ritualistic and then i do have a pair of lucky underwear and a pair of lucky socks that when I'm going through my underwear drawer and I grab the, f- the flowered underwear, I will 60 to 70% of the time put them back and say, there's nothing about today where I need these. I'll just wear regular underwear today. Do, do, have you put this to the test? Like the underwear has a direct effect on your performance? No, no, no. no. I, I think I'm being an idiot. But I do. Is, are there things it. that you would not do? Those are things you would do. Are there? Is there anything you would not do? Like, well, I want today to go well, so I better not do this. No, no, no. no. And, and, and fully 40% of the time, I come back home at the end of the day and take off the floral underpants and throw them on the floor and go, you bastards, you failed. Right. 
You failed to make today a lucky day. Yeah. Today was a shit show, <laughs> and I was wearing my lucky underwear, you right. idiot. So much for that. So, But that doesn't keep them from being my lucky underwear. I wear them the next time. That's all like football stuff. Like if you're, you know, like if you're sitting in this chair and you're sitting in that chair and we switch and the game and the team loses, you know, don't ever sit in that chair again. I mean, my football friends are like that. Absolutely. They don't, they don't want people to come to watch the game with them who can't commit to being there the whole season. Oh, right. Because if somebody bails out on a game, man, that's going to affect the spin of the ball. And I feel like that's all that's all horseshit. And but but you know, again, I do have lucky socks and lucky underwear. But it's not like I would not you know, I wouldn't make a pot of coffee because because today's a special day and I don't want to jinx it. I don't believe in jinx, let's call it jinxing. That. See, I think jinxing is a little bit is a little bit different because I'm not superstitious at all. I'm not sentimental at all when it comes to these kinds of things, but I do have a, a jinxing thing. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't want to jinx something mm-hmm. like all, all my underwear. They're all equal. Mm-hmm. None any better than the other. Open up a new pack, throw out all the old ones. Doesn't matter. Wow. Yeah. I'm free. No, 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 not free. I, I have underwear that are unwearable. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, it's not like I'm going to just get rid of them. They're, right. They've been down that road with me. They're they're part of the whole story. I just went through a whole bunch of old pairs of shoes, looked at them, and I said, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, like these were the shoes I was wearing on this day. Boop, donation pile. Oh, I think uh, these were the shoes I wore when my son was born in that donation pile. What? Yep. Oh, that's Doesn't insane. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Just shoes. You gave away the shoes. Objects. Over, oh, man. Objects. That's heavy, heavy stuff. But jinxing, I'm very concerned about jinxing something. So if I were to say, this is going to be one of the best podcasts that was ever done, you'd be like, whoa, 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 don't no, jinx No, it. no, no, not like that, because that would pump me up and I would get really into it. It's more, that, because if anything, I would take that as a challenge to outdo every other podcast anyone, including myself, has ever made, and I would do <laughs> it. <laughs> Let's do that. Yeah. No, I would do, I would totally do that. Kapow, kapow. Yeah. No, it's more like, I'm trying to think of an example of when, and I think this comes from like the, the ritualized OCD thing of like, because Wait if, a minute. Wait, 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 wait. You have OCD? You're just, yes, I do. Oh, I see. Uh, if, uh, I, it's it's definitely very well managed now compared to the way that it once was, but there's this connection in the OCD mind that if you don't do the thing that the the OCD part of you is telling you to do, that something truly terrible will happen. Right. And so I think that the jinxing is connected to that. And so like here's an exa- here's an example of how it goes. You're on your way to go to bed. You will check that the front door is locked. You already mm-hmm. know that it's locked mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you locked it mm-hmm. when Amazon did the little delivery and you can visually see the chain is on it, the deadbolt is locked, the bottom thing is locked, it's locked. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how nice the neighborhood is that you live in, it's locked, you got that. You can right. visually see it. You know Covered. what? Let's just, let's just get a tactile bit of feedback too. We'll check the lock. 
Right. And we'll check the bottom lock and we'll check the chain. Those are locked. Check the chain. We're totally sure now that it's locked, right? Cool. Maybe if we were to go right up the stairs right now, that's good. But if for some reason, oh, you know what? I need to take that basket of laundry upstairs with me. I don't want to leave that down there. Oh, you're going to check it one more time since you're there. Got to check it one more time. You know, there was a guy I used to uh, drink in a bar called Linda's Tavern here in Seattle. Or, or Linda's Tavern opened the same year that I quit drinking, but there was a year overlap where the bar opened in January and I quit drinking in December. So it was like Linda's Tavern was one of my places. And there was a guy that spent a lot of time in Linda's Tavern. He was He seemed very old. He seemed 70. But when you looked at him closely it might have been a case where his mental illness had aged him prematurely. Right. Okay. I've seen that. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, you are younger than I thought, but your face is so ravaged by the tension that you carry um, that it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's like shrunken almost. And this guy would walk around Linda's Tavern, never drink as far as I could tell, but he was just checking the five doorknobs that were in the bar and just making sure that they were secure. And, you know, he would make his round and then he would kind of go sit at the bar and then he would get up and make his round. And, and at the time, you know, I don't think any of us understood what it was beyond that it was a kind of crazy. But he was, you know, he was visibly tense and agitated harmless but just sort of making this round and the people that worked at Linda's uh, I guess just that was just part of their their day too they weren't gonna you know they they weren't gonna interrupt no one saw a need to stop him Um, but it was obviously like super duper important to his well-being. 